This podcast is brought to you by Switchboard. Students and alumni expect more support from their alma maters, and giving and engagement goals are more ambitious than ever. Team Switchboard's experts can help you adapt. Switchboard designs their training and consulting packages and case award-winning engagement platform to meet your needs and get real results. Switchboard partners with institutions of all shapes and sizes, from Bowdoin College to the University of Alberta and everything in between. Visit switchboardhq.com to learn more. Hey there, everybody. This is Dustin Ramsdell, host of the Higher Ed Geek Podcast, a proud part of the Connect EDU network of podcasts. You're listening to Advancement Legends, the career stories of engagement and fundraising professionals in higher education. Now here's Ryan with today's show. Hey listeners, it's me, Ryan, and you're listening to the Advancement Legends podcast. I share interviews with some of the greatest people in higher education advancement. On the show this week, an advancement pro that needs little introduction. Andy Shanlin is a senior consultant with Grenzebach, Glyer, and Associates, a specialist in alumni engagement with tenures at Brown, Michigan, Caltech, and Carnegie Mellon, along with a recent stint at Switchboard in the private sector, our presenting sponsor. Andy has been a thought leader in the space for more than a decade. His Alumni Futures blog was part of my own inspiration to go all in with a career in stakeholder engagement in higher education. I'm sure he's inspired many others to do the same. This is part of a two-part interview with Andy, and we talk about an array of topics from network platforms to digital communications to the future of alumni associations. Next week, in part two, we'll dig into engagement metrics. This podcast is part of the new ConnectEDU network of higher ed podcasts. You can check them all out at connectedu.network. Thanks again to Mara Zapeda and the team at Switchboard for being a presenting sponsor of the show. Now, here's my interview with Andy Shandlin. All right, Andy Shandlin, thank you so much for joining me on the Advancement Legends podcast. It's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate the opportunity. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Great. You know, I personally, when I think back in time, eight years or so, when I was at Washington and Lee and trying to really dig my fingers and toes, my my whole self into the world of alumni relations and hitting the web to find out what was out there for um, content and thought leadership. And it really was a it really was your alumni futures uh, website and, and the content that got me excited about the the industry and um, so I've been looking forward to the day where I get to have you on the show. <laughs> yeah, alumni futures has been around for eleven years now, and uh, I don't write as often as I used to. But um, in the early days, I think I was probably publishing something every week or so. So there's a lot of there's a lot of content for you to find back then. I think there was, but there wasn't a lot besides you, uh, which we'll talk about talk about later, maybe. But I love to circle back to get to the origins of your career story on the show. And I know you, of course, you attended Brown University, but I'd love to circle mm-hmm. back just a little bit further. Did you grow up in New York? It says you went to, to Nyack High School. Yeah, Nyack High School. So I, I grew up in uh, New York State, about 20 miles north of New York City, right on the Hudson River in Nyack. I went to public high school there and uh, in the early 80s, graduated and, and uh, went to Brown for my undergrad. I remember vividly growing up in Vermont and driving over the Tappan Zee Bridge mm-hmm. regularly. So I sort of un- have a sense of where your stomping ground was. Yep. Did you imagine yourself going to Brown? Was that a goal of yours? Or, or how did that? How did you end up selecting Brown? Yeah, it's actually, it, it wasn't exactly a goal. I think I applied to eight schools 
And uh, originally, actually, was thinking of living overseas, and I applied to the American College in Paris. And at that time, they had rolling admissions, and I got admitted sometime in the winter before all the other schools made their admissions decisions. And I, I was sort of committed. I paid the deposit, and I was ready to go to the American College in Paris. And it was more about uh, kind of, well, wouldn't it be cool to live in Paris? Then I got into some other schools and visited Brown and really loved it and um, decided, you know what, I could always go to Paris, but, you know, going to Brown is kind of a, a once in a, a lifetime opportunity for me. So I, I decided to uh, stay in the States and, um, and and it was it was more of a kind of a not a spur of the moment decision, but it wasn't something I planned for or carefully mapped out. It just kind of happened. And I was very lucky. Well, certainly uh, you could do a. Uh, <laughs> A lot worse than Brown, right? Uh, this is uh, one of the best schools in, on the planet. And, uh, just sidebar, did you? Uh, I know they had a great uh, 250th anniversary celebration yeah. at Brown recently. But did you participate in any of those festivities? <laughs> no, it's funny. You know, I mean, as you know from from looking at my LinkedIn profile, you can see that I worked at Brown. That was my my first job in alumni work in higher ed, and was there for many years. And, and I still, because of that, to a large extent, although I'm on alumnus of Brown, I still think of alumni activities at Brown as being kind of like too much work related and not really sort of personal, you know, and if I didn't work in alumni relations, I probably wouldn't feel that way. And I probably would be more involved as as a graduate than uh, than I actually am. So um, I, I read about all the materials and I followed the the story of the uh, the celebrations of the the founding in 1764, but I, I didn't attend anything. Well, that makes sense. I, I can certainly understand the the alumni engagement uh, fatigue when you, when you do it for a, when you do it for a living. Yeah. Well, so let's go let's go back to when you were when you were approaching graduation at Brown. Did you have inroads to the alumni shop at the time, or what were you thinking as no. you were imagining uh, what to do after you graduated? No, I I had no knowledge or awareness of of alumni as a thing. You know, honestly, I, I didn't plan at all for kind of, you know, oh, here's a career path or I know what I want to do. I was one of those people who sort of was maybe a little bit nervous about getting locked into something specific and then finding out I didn't enjoy it or wasn't good at it. So I kind of under the guise of of keeping all my options open, I, I really didn't do anything decisive. Only thing I really knew, I majored in international relations and I just was interested in international stuff. And I thought, you know, whatever I do, I hope that it is something I can do that spans different countries and different regions of the world and is international. Um, but beyond that, honestly, um, I hadn't thought very carefully about it at all. And after graduation, uh, as a result, I did what all good indecisive college graduates do. And I decided to go to grad school to delay any further career decisions. So let's talk about graduate school. Where did you go and what were you thinking? I went to a great little school, which at the time was called the Monterey Institute for International Studies in Monterey, California. It's today, it's part of Middlebury College, and it's called the Middlebury Institute for International Studies. And it's um, uh, not as well known as it should be outside of the areas where it specializes in, but the, the specialties there are really language programs, graduate programs in things like simultaneous translation and interpretation. I was actually enrolled in a master's program in international policy studies. So kind of an extension of my undergrad interest in international relations, political science, history, economics. But I did not graduate. I actually I was there for one year of a two year program and, and sort of flamed out on being in school and just couldn't really um, didn't really follow through. And also being a being an East Coast guy and having never been 
farther west probably than Philadelphia and then suddenly moving to California actually was uh, I was a little homesick and decided to move back to the Northeast. So what did you do after you, you moved back to the Northeast? I had been working my senior year in college and then afterwards out in California part time while I was going to grad school. I had been working for the Princeton Review doing standardized test prep courses for high school uh-huh. kids to get them I ready to take the yeah, you know, ready to take the SAT uh, to get in, you know, the uh, scholastic aptitude test to get admitted to university. And um, and I was I was running some courses. So I ended up working for them full time for a year or so um, in New York City before I decided I wanted to move back to New England, which is how I ended up sort of finding my way back to Brown as a as a staff member. Well, let's talk about that. The, you are the director of alumni education, a fantastic mm-hmm. role. Uh, you said you created your first ever uh, education program online, specifically for a university, which is yeah. you know kind of dating yourself a little bit, I suppose. Uh, but but in uh, at the time that that had to have been really sort of cutting edge. Talk, let's talk about that. Yeah, so I started working at Brown, and so I graduated in '86, made some money to try to uh, go to grad school. I went to grad school. I moved back east. I worked for the Princeton Review, and by the time I started working in alumni relations at Brown, it was 1989. Hard to believe it was almost 30, 30 years ago. And it was just, you know, maybe three or four years after that, that Internet email actually became something that everyone had either through their work and office or um, through the the early days of uh, private email through AOL and CompuServe and Prodigy. And the old folks listening to your podcast will will remember those days uh, as well. And so I thought, you know, gee, a lot of people are using email now. Maybe that's a way to to deliver some educational content from the faculty members at the university to the alumni, because what I was doing was sort of taking professors on the road and traveling all over the all over the place and having them give talks to 30 or 40 people at a time. And I thought, well, you know, there's some people who could do this on their own time. They could do it a little bit or a lot if they wish. They can do it slowly or partially. And it it just provided more flexibility. So it seems like an obvious extension of traditional classroom setting to put alumni in touch with learning resources by email. So that's that's what we did. We used Listserv, which was just a, you know, a free service where you could subscribe to get a bunch of emails whenever there was a discussion taking place. Wow, that's really interesting. And you were you were at Brown for just shy of eight years. Just mm-hmm. describe your your tenure there. What what was it like? What was it like doing alumni programming at your alma mater? Um, it was great. And and I have to say, like when I started working there, like I said, it was eighty nine, and I left in ninety six. I think when I started, it was obvious that you would not work in alumni relations unless you worked at your alma mater, hmm. because you know it was kind of like well. It's your alma mater. Of course you would work there. Why would you work at a school that you didn't even go to? And I think the profession changed a little bit during that period. And it was in the early 90s to the mid 90s when it became maybe professionalized enough as a discipline for people like me to to think seriously about, wow, if I really want to kind of expand or um, extend my career beyond this particular opportunity, it makes sense to go and work as an alumni professional at an institution other than your alma mater. But working there was great. I did have the opportunity to 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 learn something that students aren't exposed to, for better or worse, you know, the administrative managerial side of of the institution. I did get because of my job was working with alumni clubs primarily and doing educational programming. I got to work with great volunteers. I got to travel 
quite a bit. And I also met some amazing professors, instructors, researchers, as well as students. And, and so it was a really it was a really great opportunity. And that's when I actually decided and realized, wow, higher ed is a great place for me to be. I really like working in the university setting. So uh, it, it was a good, good experience. Now for a word from our sponsor. Here's Mara Zapeta, CEO of Switchboard. We do a tremendous amount of training and services. So in addition to the platform, we do a lot of coaching and training. We do day-long workshops to help your teams to align around the metrics and motivations of your community. We do week-long boot camps that can help to align your teams around engagement and creating a strategy. We help with implementation if you're struggling with any other software and you're not quite sure how to develop a strategy for it and it's been underperforming. We help you think through what that strategy might look like. And then we also have the on-site higher education innovation fellows and we do coaching as well. So we have a team of professionals that come from higher ed that are just really excited to coach and train and provide a roadmap to success. Stretching out your sort of thinking more broadly to alumni and alumni engagement as a career, as you say, you sort of started off at your alma mater and, and the industry kind of began to to show itself as a as a potential profession and you then left brown for the university of michigan alumni association Mm -hmm. what was what was this uh, thinking around that transition well it was interesting actually you know uh full credit to um my boss at michigan who's still there steve grafton who's the head of the the alumni association steve was at a conference it was the old alumni that was the uh, Maneri conference on alumni education that Steve attended one year. And he and I sat down and had a couple of good conversations. And and he said to me, you know, look, I've got a, a position that I'm creating um, for someone to actually lead educational programming opportunities for alumni, the travel program, some lifelong learning opportunities on campus, and uh, maybe even expand, as we did later, into career services for alumni, which at that time was sort of a new offering in that in that school. And credit to Steve for thinking, you know, I don't just want to hire the best Michigan grad for this job in that sort of traditional alums working at their alma mater mode. But he thought, you know, who's a good person who is somewhere else in the profession? I want the biggest pool possible to choose from. So I was very lucky to kind of meet him at the right at the right time when I was thinking about, you know, what else could I do? Because I I, I did like working at Brown, but I also felt like after seven and a half years, a good career move would be actually to diversify the type of organization I was associated with. And, you know, Brown kind of, um, you know, middle sized Northeastern private liberal arts Ivy League school, Michigan, large Midwestern, upper Midwest public research university, two very different institutions. And I thought, okay, this will add a a dimension to my my resume that I wouldn't get if I if I stayed in the in the uh, place where I was. Yeah. And then, of course, the your professional trajectory, at least by way of your LinkedIn profile, has a bit of a a hole in it that looks to be about ten years. Did you did you <laughs> did did you enjoy your work there at uh, University of Michigan, or did it propel you to take a completely different track? No, I, I I was at Michigan for three years exactly, and I would have stayed there except I had a great opportunity that uh, I, I heard about and pursued and, and, and got. So so I was at Michigan from 96 to 99, really enjoyed it. Steve was doing some really interesting things with the 
sort of organizational structure and the approach to alumni programming, where it was a much more of a focus on the generational cohorts where the staff were being organized more according to kind of which audiences are you going to serve as opposed to what programs are you going to deliver? And that was really interesting. And I was lucky to be sort of part of the beginning of that. But then I was recruited to apply for the position of executive director at the Caltech Alumni Association, the California Institute of Technology out in Pasadena, California, near Los Angeles. And um, again, a very different type of institution. I thought, boy, you know, it was ranked number one in U.S. News that year. And I thought, boy, you know, what a great opportunity to maybe work at the, the number one ranked school for whatever the rankings are worth. Um, you know, <laughs> from a PR perspective, it looked good. And so I decided that I would I would leave Michigan and go out to sunny Southern California. And I did. And I was there for over 10 years. I should say I misread your, your LinkedIn profile as um, actually at the end of your tenure as the executive director, you, got, you were serving as assistant vice president, not just for the alumni shop, but for the development shop. How do you remember that transition and, and what was that like? Yeah, that was an interim role at Caltech. So we um, we had a transition of vice presidents. So the, the vice president uh, who oversaw advancement had had two direct reports. It was me as the head of alumni, the alumni association, and um, it was the uh, assistant or associate VP for development. And that person was the acting vice president during their search. And so to help him kind of cover the the direct reports in development, I agreed to take on a couple of parts of the fundraising oversight for, um, you know, the duration of that search. So I had annual giving and um, advancement communications, I think, reported to me. And it was a uh, uh, it was sort of a, a way for me to kind of get closer to fundraising, because in my jobs at Brown in Michigan, I was in a very much traditional sort of arm's length cordial but not integrated relationship with my fundraising colleagues. And by, you know, 2006 to 2010, I think the profession was starting to see that you couldn't, in most normal circumstances, couldn't afford to just operate alumni relations anymore as a a bubble that was not connected with the rest of advancement or the rest of the university. And so I was interested in learning more about fundraising, and, and that was an opportunity to to start to do so. Yeah. Well, then you transitioned back to, sort of to the East Coast, to Carnegie Mellon, which is a, just about the time where I believe I discovered you, having uh, you know, sort of gotten into my career in alumni relations at that point. And that was a you know, hugely pivotal time in the realm of our, our line of work as social media came into mm-hmm. to prominence, the work, you know, thought, thinking around content marketing and driving traffic to our, our one of my websites. Yep. And you were sitting in a seat there at Carnegie Mellon as the associate vice president for alumni relations and annual giving. So you had to be really thinking about sort of the intersection of engagement and philanthropy in the digital space. What do yeah. you remember about some of those early days and in, in thinking about that? Well, actually, you know, that, that thinking about the digital engagement now, in hindsight, although at the time, I'm not sure I was aware of sort of the thought process, but it does go back to my time at Caltech because partially because being in an environment where all of the alumni, literally all of the alumni are STEM graduates with degrees in math or science or engineering, you know, um, these are people who are comfortable with and rely heavily on technology for their work, for their livelihood, for their communications, for their, you know, at work they do not only their academic careers, but in their professional lives. And and so I was probably more exposed to the idea of digital tools being sort of the normal way of doing work than I would have been if I were maybe at a, you know, an 
uh, School of Fine Arts or a, a music conservatory. I don't know. So by the time I got to Carnegie Mellon, it was, you know, 2011. Facebook had been around, you know, probably what, seven years or something and, and LinkedIn for, you know, good five years. And, and so I think the idea that these tools were important was was not com- yeah. it was not new but what was new was the idea that and this is still something and we can talk about this but this is yeah. still something that, that's emerging which is this idea that that when the computer became something that you used to communicate with going back to the listserv that we ran at brown by email um, going up through kind of web 2.0 and then followed by social media people thought of it as a sort of a technical solution like well you need to know a lot about computers in order to use that to communicate and of course that wasn't true maybe at the very very beginning it was but it really wasn't as true as people thought it was and that morphed into this belief a lot of senior leaders who maybe came up through the ranks during a time before digital communication even really was available they thought well if it's not highly technical then it is squarely in the realm of communications. And it wasn't seen as something that alumni professionals necessarily needed to know how to do. It was more the marketing and communications people who needed to know how the website worked or how to FTP files to a server or you know um, how to use Yahoo to do a search because Google hadn't been invented yet. And, and, and I think by the time I got to Carnegie Mellon, it had finally started to dawn on people that, no, this isn't a technical solution, it's just what you do. Yeah. No, you know, in, in the way that a telephone maybe a hundred years ago might have been seen as a newfangled kind of engineering contraption and eventually became something you took for granted that anyone just knew how to use because you did so every day. So as the internet became something you used all the time for all kinds of things, the opportunity to engage alumni moved more squarely from the technical into the communications and then into the alumni relations programming realm. And I think that's where we are today, I'm happy to say. And I think that um, that's maybe not as obvious a progression to people who didn't kind of live through it. But I I can remember quite vividly sort of watching those transitions uh, happen. Yeah. You know, I was at a a meeting, I guess it was two months ago, of all the the alumni directors in the state of Virginia in Mm -hmm. in a huddle up together. And I remember kind of asking the group, you know, how are we managing the intersection of what is marketing and what is engagement? Right. And, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, just, you look at the basic anatomy of a Facebook post where you, you may be sharing an article, right. And you are driving traffic back to your website. And, uh, but yet in that Facebook post itself, there are, there's liking, there's commenting, there's sharing, Mm -hmm. there's, Mm -hmm. there's engagement happening. Mm -hmm. And, and I think right now we, we know we need to use social media to communicate, but we're trying to figure out what to do with the rest of the components of all those interactions and mm-hmm. um, how to score it, how to manage it. Skipping ahead to sort of modern day challenges, mm. how are you seeing alumni directors sort of managing this interesting problem of what is marketing and, and what is engagement in the digital space? You know, my answer to that is probably very, very deeply influenced by the last sort of work transition after my Carnegie Mellon job, where I was in one institution where things were done a certain way to what I do now, which is, you know, as a consultant working with many different kinds of institutions on many different kinds of issues and problems that I'm seeing much more of a a kind of a, a willingness to branch out and, and adapt more quickly, which is very important. I think that the, the, 
if you think about communication models that alumni organizations used for decades at least, if not, you know, a century or more, right? Print was kind of it. You know, when you go back, when I started working in alumni relations, you had the magazine, the alumni magazine, and, and maybe there were some regional newsletters that went out to the clubs. They were printed and they were put in the mail and sent out. And and that was it. And, you know, then you got email and, you know, you could do more and more in more different ways with email, but it was still it was kind of one more medium. And then you had the web, which again was electronic, but it tended to look exactly like the print stuff. And you fast forward to today and there's apps and there's platforms and there's channels and there's tools that are very diverse. And the main thing is they're very quickly evolving mm-hmm. so that not only do the, you know, even if you decide, well, Facebook is our go to digital tool, Facebook itself is frequently constantly changing the way that it works for organizations and for individuals. The algorithms change and the interactions change in ways that you may not even completely know about or understand and that you certainly don't have control over the way you would if you were deciding whether to print, you know, your magazine, you know, every so often or on a certain format or a certain type of paper or with a certain number of photos or a certain number of words. You just don't have that control anymore. And I think now people are finally getting kind of comfortable with or at least willing to kind of operate in a mode where there isn't any constant other than the fact that something is going to change next week and we don't know what it is or how it's going to change. Mm-hmm. So that that adaptability and that flexibility and that willingness to kind of accept the ambiguity that comes with relying on tools you don't control is a, a huge mind shift in the profession and is, and is a key to success, I think, for the people who are comfortable in leadership roles today. One component of that is accepting that inevitability that something's going to happen and you're going to have to respond quickly and adapt and experiment and circle back and see if it's working. And that's okay because that's, that's the way the, the profession is going. Yeah. You know, I think, um, you know, I'd sort of looking, thinking about, um, some of the great challenges we're facing now as an industry, and then looking at sort of your most recent career change where you headed and you were working with switchboard, uh, of course, a mm-hmm. pre- presenting sponsor of the show. And, and Mara Zapata, who, of course, I interviewed earlier in the season. Mm-hmm. And, you know, thinking more broadly, not just about, about Switchboard and, and their technology, their sort of alumni network platform, but alumni network platforms and alumni, digital alumni communities in general. Mm-hmm. We've got this huge industry out there that, whether it's private K-12 organizations to colleges of all shapes and sizes are all considering investments in these different alumni network platforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I you know I wrote not too long ago and we start, <laughs> started a conversation, yeah. which, which you joined and lots of people yeah. joined about these network platforms. When you are working with clients around the country as a, you know, a consultant um, at GGNA, how are you helping them make decisions when it comes to managing and, or what to select when it comes to these tools? Great question. And that conversation you mentioned that you started, I think, on LinkedIn and that um, kind of engaged a lot of people from both from the client side and from the provider side was a great conversation about, you know, what what is a reasonable expectation from deploying a certain tool and a certain type of community is really key. To answer your question, I mean, the, the short answer is strategy. I think in helping a client decide whether or how to pursue digital engagement strategy with a particular platform or a combination of social media or all of those things or something else. I always go back to 
why do you have an alumni community in the first place? What's the mission and purpose of engaging alumni? What are you trying to accomplish at a really high level long term? And if you have a strategic plan that has a clear mission and a statement of, you know, three or four goals and or objectives and the strategies that support those and the tactics that support the strategies, then you're in a position to kind of work backwards from the outcome you're trying to achieve and say, well, what will help us achieve this particular outcome? And, you know, how could we deploy it? And what kind of resources do we have to invest in it? And what kind of timeline do we have for expecting a return on that investment that we can see? And what would it look like if it were to match our definition of success? That's how you answer the question what do we need? Um, what might work? What's a good idea? It's by looking at what you're in business to do in the first place and working backwards from there to answer that question, how can we do that? And I think the organizations that stick with those sort of first principles and remember not the really slick marketing material from the software company that's selling a platform, but who remember the really kind of maybe lengthy and not as slick and exciting discussion in their retreat about their strategic purpose (laughs) or their mission statement are the ones that are actually going to make good decisions about which tools to deploy and what to expect from them. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I struggle, even as as someone who has sort of a digital first mentality when it comes to um, engagement, is the way that we are aligning our teams to properly communicate with stakeholders. Because Within organizations, alumni teams, you've got various organizing principles, usually around programs, right? A reunion team, a mm-hmm. alumni travel team, a, a, a regional engagement team, a career services team. And all these teams have, without question, significant needs, not just from in the space of driving traffic to their websites, their individual web pages, but also, you know, the marketing around those programs. And then you still find the need, I think, for a broader strategy, right? Not just around the programs, but around communicating in the right ways around the entirety of your engagement shop or initiatives. How are you helping teams think about best practices when it comes to who's doing sort of the work of of communicating and engaging in the digital space? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, one one thing that is in our profession that we we tend to look at kind of high profile brand name institutions that are very well known for their academic quality or for their public profile and we look to them to see how they're doing these things so if you know if you went down the street and you asked 10 different people name three universities <laughs> they would probably name mostly the same three universities or three of the same five or something like that I think actually where we see the best decision making around how to engage is among the other 99.99% of the institutions that don't have the resources and the, frankly, the luxury of investing adequately, perhaps in the staff and the budget and the time necessary to do these things correctly. So if you go to places that have fewer staff and that have fewer budget dollars to spend, which is most of them. You find people doing whatever is necessary to succeed because they can't simply add a staff person. And whatever is necessary increasingly involves collaboration. And where I see the most, I think, um, productive deployment of these different tools across the program areas that you described is places where the alumni team 
is in a truly collaborative relationship with the folks in maybe it's marketing or communications or advancement communications, whoever else has their hands on the the controls of some of these digital tools. And that means that your communications professionals, even though they're not quote unquote alumni relations professionals first and foremost, see the alumni audience as their audience as well. They see the success of an alumni program as being something that they are also responsible for. It's not just up to the alumni team to to figure out and, you know, good luck and report back next year. It's more like, hey, we're in this with you. We also value and understand the importance of alumni as the biggest audience that the institution has, as the only permanent audience that the institution has. And therefore, we're committed to helping make it work. What do you need and how can we collaborate in a way that is a, a true partnership? And I think that that model, that partnership model and that collaborative model is not just true of the communications tools and the, some of the digital interaction that you're talking about, but it, it actually applies to everything in an institution. It's the relationship with your fundraising colleagues. It's a relationship with the data folks or with the admission office or athletics or the career center and the academic units. All of those things benefit when both parties see it as a partnership and a collaboration and not when they say, oh, alumni, that's the alumni office's problem. I hope they figure it out and then go on about doing their own doing their own work. Uh, it has to be a, a two-way street. Yeah. You know, I think that the, the, the topic of organizing models is a really important one. And, and one of the most interesting aspects of our world is the alignment of alumni associations with respect to the university. And so sort of broadly speaking, we, mm -hmm. there's kind of two models with a lot of space uh, and connectivity between them, right? One is the, the university advancement model, whereby there is an alumni team working towards essentially pipeline development, right? Um, right. That they are, that the, the alignment is such that it, the success of that vice president is about dollars. And so although mm -hmm. There is a, you know, that's not the only role of the, the alumni team is helping in that capacity to, to build a donor pipeline through engagement initiatives and activities. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have separately operating independent alumni associations, right? Yeah. Where there's employees of the alumni association and, and they have revenue streams beyond philanthropy. And then yeah. there's everything in between, right? There's, yeah. There are the smaller universities whereby an, an alumni leader is an employee of the university, but also a conduit to the Alumni Association Board of Directors. And there's a lot of like, there's a, mm -hmm. there is no identical model, it feels like, mm -hmm. around mm -hmm. higher ed. What do you think about that? Like, are we, are we, not very organized or is this just an example of a scenario whereby every university has to figure out what fits them yeah good question i, I think it's evolutionary i think that different institutions are at different places on this uh, this continuum and as you correctly point out it, it's not an either or model where it's kind of like well you're either independent or completely dependent you are you know there's this kind of interdependence realm in the middle of it that's like a bell curve where most institutions fall but the overall shift that i think we're seeing in the profession is towards integration. It's towards what, you know, we kind of have been calling an integrated advancement shop for a few years. And what that means is that on the surface, the number of independent alumni organizations that are actually leading, guiding, or controlling alumni engagement has decreased. 
And underneath the surface, the number that are able to financially sustain their independence is very tiny. It's, you know, maybe a half a dozen that rely on membership dues and their own fundraising and sponsorships. And with that money can actually cover the cost of their office space and their staff salaries and benefits. Uh, Everyone else is relying on the university either a little bit or a lot Mm -hmm. or entirely in some cases to fund the alumni engagement enterprise. And it's shifting towards the more integrated model. So when you see some of the formerly independent alumni associations that were self-supportive a long time ago, like one that comes to mind, for example, is Wisconsin. The University of Wisconsin had two separate organizations. They had their foundation, which was the fundraising arm of the university, and they had their alumni association, which was this independent organization that was self-contained with regard to its governance and financing. They've actually merged you know, intentionally and and decisively to actually, instead of having two separate boards of directors, they have one board. They have, you know, one one staff and, um, you know, they're kind of under a, a unitary budget model. That doesn't mean that the association needs to surrender its brand. The identity of an alumni community still exists and can still be kind of presented to students and alumni and to the campus as a lifelong relationship and that, that lives under the association umbrella. But from a governance, from a business standpoint, they're more integrated than ever. I worked one of my clients is uh, Oregon State University in, in Corvallis, Oregon, and they went through a partial integration of alumni association and foundation recently that we at GGNA we helped them with. And, and so I think that's the kind of the trend. I don't think it's good or bad. It's kind of just what's happening. And it's not that alumni relations doesn't have um, a system that it follows. It's just that the circumstances dictate how and how much these previously separate organizations need to kind of share their resources and um, integrate in order to be effective. And so in thinking through that sort of additionally, is is it fair to say that the future looks a lot more like alumni associations operating, although they exist as a formal entity on paper, that they're much more of a symbol uh, than they are an actually operating organization. The alumni board, the president, the interactions the university has, the way that they talk about the association that doesn't have membership dues, right? Everybody's a right. member. Everybody's right. a member. If that's the case, and the university is really ensuring the existence of the alumni association, it's really the university saying, okay, we want to have that brand still exist, even though we don't really need it. I wouldn't put it that way. I actually would put it differently. I I think, you know, there is a symbolic aspect to it, which is sort of the brand identity and the brand promise, as they say, in the marketing realm. What does it mean to be an alum? What is that identity really about? And, you know, symbolically, the association can represent that relationship with its alumni throughout their lives. But there is much more than that that they can do. There is more practical, applied, functional role that these organizations can perform, even if they are, say, fully funded by the advancement budget and not self-funded through dues or membership. And that role has to do with actively engaging people in the life of the institution. So there is work to do for alumni boards to not only, you know, update the bylaws and approve the minutes, but to actually roll up their sleeves and pick projects that help the institution achieve its stated goals at the same time that they satisfy the graduates' interests in activities or services or events that are of interest and relevance to the alumni themselves. So I I think that there's still a kind of a hands-on role to be played. How it's structured, how it's funded, how it's governed is less important 
than whether it has some impact on the success of the institution and its community. And that's the area where I think alumni organizations still have an active role to play, especially through volunteer-driven activities that give alumni the opportunity to kind of literally be involved in the life of the institution, not just sit back passively and hear about it because they get a newsletter, because they have a membership in an association that they're not really participating in. So I I think there's still a lot of um, functional purpose to having an alumni enterprise. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it is sort of furthering the conversation about volunteerism and, and alumni boards. I think that if there is one sort of unifying alumni engagement program that exists at almost every single university, right, it's that there is a an alumni advisory board or a board of directors for the alumni association and mm-hmm. and to the degree to which they meet and the work that gets done versus it being more of a, a social enterprise. Yeah. I have no doubt that you find yourself having conversations with most universities about how the alumni boards are mm-hmm. developed and coached and best utilized. What would you say to the folks out there who are sort of wondering about how to kind of evolve their alumni board programs and, and what have you seen when it's working at its best? Yeah, I I do have that conversation consistently with clients of different types, with different types of structures and sort of different stages of kind of development or evolution of their alumni program. I think I try to steer that conversation towards what I was just saying a minute ago, which is that idea that you want to actually have your alumni board members in a dialogue with the leaders of the institution, academic deans, department chairs, the provost, the president, trustees you know, heads of research institutes or academic centers on campus, have them talking to the VP for student affairs, have them talking to the head of the library and asking, what are your big challenges? What are you currently trying to do? What in the next three to five years is is the, the goal for your particular part of the university? And listening carefully to the answers they get from those leaders and overlaying those with places where alumni can contribute or help. And then taking that information and saying, aha, we have a project that we can roll out. Alumni board members can be involved, alumni at large, volunteers across the alumni community can be involved. And we know that it's something that the institution needs because we found out about it from the institution's leadership. And that does two things. One is it helps the institution achieve its goals. But two is it shows the people inside the institution that alumni are not just this kind of faceless crowd that we need to solicit for donations. And that's their sole purpose, but it's actually um, a community of connected and loyal people who want the institution to succeed. When the institution succeeds, you know, there's that increase in, in what we call degree equity, right? If the institution is well known and is, and is seen as being by the public as being successful and uh, having a positive impact, my degree from that institution actually goes up in value. And when someone says, oh, you went to school there, I hear that's a great university. Everybody benefits. So I I think that there is a way to kind of look for projects in a systematic way that will be of interest to alumni and will be of value to the institution and packaging those and maybe picking one a year or two a year that are high level are a way for a board to really kind of apply its work and not just sit back and kind of get the free dinner every six months when there's a board meeting. <laughs> yeah, or, or sort of be insularly focused, right, on new membership, on, you know, sort of the, the operations of the board itself. And so thinking more broadly about volunteerism as an engagement opportunity, you know, for, for years and years and years, we've had 
like ver- boards of various types to be the answer when someone says, I'd like to help, right? It, it's like, well, maybe I, you could be on the alumni board or, or maybe you could be on the regional chapter board or maybe you could, yeah, maybe yeah. you could be on a board. And then roughly, I don't know, six, six or seven years ago, Columbia University successfully executed the day of giving uh, right, program yeah. where a huge part of their success was around the <laughs> realm of the digital ambassador, right? And all of a sudden we realized that alumni a, it was okay to talk about philanthropy in the digital space, right? Uh, and B, uh, alumni could give not just their time, but their networks as well, right? Yeah. As you're thinking about the way that our work and our industry has evolved over time, how do you see the work of volunteerism in the digital space evolving? And where do you think we're headed to next? You know, in fairness, Ryan, you probably know more about the answer to this question than I do, because I know that you've thought a lot about, you know, what micro volunteerism or, or kind of graduated steps of volunteerism look like, especially in the digital realm. You're the first person who, you know, just kind of mentioned to me something that I, I hadn't thought of before, which is the idea that asking alumni to make sure that their alma mater is included on their LinkedIn profile is actually a form of digital volunteerism and it's ambassadorship. It's small. Yeah. It only takes 15 minutes or 10 minutes. And yet if a large number of people do it, it has a visible impact on the profile of the institution. So that kind of thinking, I do think that, you know, your point about giving days is broader than just giving days. There's a lot of hand wringing about like, oh my God, people are already sick of days of giving and how long can this trend last and will they continue to be successful? I don't think we're at that point yet, but it is right to ask that question. But I think part of the answer to that question is, not to talk about the particular program itself, like a day of giving, but to talk about what it represents more conceptually, which is peer-to-peer engagement. And this idea that, well, the idea of peer engagement is something that can take many forms. And to start asking, what other forms can it take? I don't have a, a kind of a ready list of answers to that. That's something that maybe we could have a separate conversation about. But the idea that it's it's not about a day of giving, it's about engaging peers with one another in a way that generates some kind of awareness, visibility, support, connection to alma mater. The second is this micro-volunteerism, this idea that people aren't as interested in being on a board because you say, oh yeah, sure, um, I'll join the board. And then they find out it's a three-year term. And now you're you're in it four meetings a year for three years and I got to travel to the campus. And you know, all of a sudden it's a, it's a huge commitment. There is a place for that, but there's also a place for more recent generations of alumni who are not as interested in permanent structures. And I think this is something that my colleague um, at Indiana University, JT Forbes, has spoken about very articulately, which is this idea that sort of permanent structures like these boards and the standing committees Mm -hmm. and advisory councils are less appealing to more recent graduates. And they're more likely to engage in something that is shorter term, you know, an ad hoc task force, say, that has a very specific purpose, a finite period of engagement that's shorter and explicit. And they will get involved as volunteers if they're able to do it in a way that fits in with all the other stuff they're doing in their busy lives. So the last thing I was going to mention that that you touched on already is this idea that there's that sort of cliche that, oh, alumni give time, talent, and treasure. You know, somewhere in there, somewhere between time and talent, I guess, is is what you said, which is access to their networks. And the idea that people's networks have always existed is, is true, but it's also that they're now more visible and sort of accessible than they have been at any other time. 
because you can go online and because of powerful internet search and, and databases like LinkedIn, you can find out who knows who and how they know them and how well they know them. And you can start to structure your requests of alumni in ways that are likely to align with their actual ability to respond. So rather than having a generic volunteer job for somebody, which is like, hey, come in and stuff envelopes, anyone could do it. Yeah, <laughs> I could come to you and say, oh, you work in higher education advancement. Wow. Perhaps, you know, somebody with experience in nonprofit governance who, you know, has done volunteer recruitment and training. And, you know, I can target the ask of you as a volunteer much more specifically based on what I know about who you are and what you do and who you do it with. And that's more rewarding for you as somebody who's giving of your resources. And it's more useful to the institution because it targets someone's particular expertise in a way that's really relevant to them. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, as we continue to evolve our line of work and our thinking about it, in the minutes that we have left, I wanted to talk to you about the connectivity between engagement and philanthropy. And our organizations, majority of them, if not, you know, all of them, almost all of them, are aligned such that there's a, a, re- a required collaboration, a required fusion between engagement and development. Right. That we, if we're doing our jobs well, then messages around philanthropy are, are subtly or not so subtly included in engagement events and initiatives. Mm-hmm. But is that the, is that the optimum way that we could be organizing? And what I mean by that is, is, is could, could or should we be organized around engagement itself as a communication strategy that's designed to impact not just philanthropy, but admissions, yeah. enrollment, retention, like bigger, yep. bigger questions. Yeah. So um, I do think there's an untapped, largely untapped opportunity to organize around the entire institution's needs, not just the philanthropic needs, although those are obviously critical because the institutions we're talking about are expensive places to run. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, success, you know, is going to require investment and alumni are certainly historically, a source of that investment. Having said that, I'll go back to something I already said, which is, to me, the answer to your question goes back to strategy. If you have a strategic plan that accounts for the main achievements, all right, so you start with your, you know, you might have a vision statement that's kind of optional, but you have a mission statement for alumni engagement. The mission statement is the reason you're in the alumni business. It's the what you're trying to accomplish indefinitely into the future as an alumni community. And your high-level goals are going to reflect some of the things you were just talking about, admissions and recruitment and enrollment, fundraising and philanthropy and financial support, student life, career success and professional achievement of alumni. And as you identify those three or four or five really high-level, longer-term goals that are going to be in your strategic plan – What you should be doing is picking three or four or five goals that if you achieve all of them, you will have fulfilled that mission, that mission statement. Mm -hmm. And once you've kind of landed on those things, you can then start to fill in the blanks by saying like, okay, it's one thing to say we're going to help the university with its academic success. That's really vague. It's really huge. How do we do that? And you start answering that question of how. Well, maybe alumni come and they lecture as guest lecturers in the faculty classrooms. You know, maybe we structure that in a systematic way instead of just having it be a the kind of ad hoc one-off thing that it that it 
is today. Those answers to those questions become the strategies that ensure you won't be narrowly focused only on the fundraising campaign that's going on, that you will be focused as well on helping the academic units, the deans and the provost and the professors, that you will be helping the students themselves as they establish a foundation for a successful professional life after after graduation. And by having that kind of, you know, start with your desired outcome and work backwards approach, you are going to make it more, much more likely that alumni can be engaged in ways that benefit the entire breadth of the institution and not simply makes alumni feel like they're uh, an automatic teller machine that gets hit up every time there's a fundraising campaign or an annual appeal, because that's a, that's a risk. And that is a stereotype. You know, we hear that from focus groups when we ask alumni, Hey, describe your relationship with alma mater. Inevitably, the first thing we hear is, Oh, that I only hear from them when they're asking for money. We know that's not true because we audit the communications and we can say, Oh, well, only one out of every seven messages is actually fundraising related. But for the alums, the perception is the reality, and they really need to be listened to so that we can understand how it looks from the other end of that two-way street that we're on. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, we're, we're organized underneath, typically, a vice president for advancement who, if he or she is reporting to the board of, <laughs> a board of trustees, yeah. and, the, and that person says, hey, board, you know, I'm so excited. Fundraising's a little bit down this year, but guess what? engagement is up. Aren't I doing a good job? They're all, they're all going to say no. Like, why are you like the number one priority around your work should be making sure that the dollars come in the door. And that's the person overseeing engagement, right? Yeah. Well, I I think the key there is having an advancement leader, like, uh, you know, vice president for development that you described being willing and able to explain to the trustees or to the deans or to uh, you know the president that long-term fundraising success actually depends on more and more relevant engagement, and that the way to fill the pipeline with donors is not to just you know make the donate button bigger on the web page. <laughs> it's to actually give people ways to get and stay connected that are meaningful to those people, not just meaningful to the institution. And so bombarding people with emails about your top three campaign priorities is not going to be as successful as, for example, using social media to listen instead of broadcast messaging to listen to what alumni actually are concerned about in their own lives. And then going back to the institution and looking for resources that you can point them to that will make that institution relevant and meaningful to them in their own way. In the long run, that's a more successful strategy for engagement and therefore a more successful strategy for fundraising. The key word is long run. The pressure for short-term returns on investment is quite high. And no place does that show up more visibly than in the annual fund, which has annual in its name, right? And so, you know, the idea that like, well, you're gonna have have to have good results this year. Nobody wants to hear the three-year plan for the annual fund. They want to know what this year's numbers are because it's annual. And I think that actually does a disservice to the longer-term strategic investment in fundraising that comes from effective engagement of all different kinds. People who are involved as volunteers for the admission office or for athletics or for the career center or for the academic departments are more likely to say yes when asked to give 
than people who are otherwise completely disengaged and do only hear from you when you want to ask for money. So I, I think you need both. And I think the key is articulating in a way that people who think strategically see as a long-term outcome and are willing to be a little more patient and waiting to uh, measure. Yeah. So, and sort of a last question here, thinking through how alumni leaders should be planning for the future. We've talked a lot about digital communities and building online, offline experiences that kind of blend together, right? Mm -hmm. that, that become opportunities to activate within and to be part of something that's not a, an annual, just a gift, right? So it's, I guess the, the question I wanted to end on is, how do you think that we can do a better job with engagement retention? Not just about thinking about donor pipelines through engagement, but keeping people participating year after year in ways that don't feel like they're getting stale. I, I hearken all the way back to mm -hmm. your original comment about how you, you do this line of work uh, for a living. And then but so that sort of propelled you to not really be all that interested in <laughs> uh, celebrating with Brown when around their 250th. So how do we keep people who are so busy, who are activated, sort of participating in an ongoing way? Yeah. You know, this comes back for me to the question of measurement. We, we didn't talk that much about metrics, but as you know, that's maybe the biggest topic other than what we've been talking about in alumni relations today, which is how do you assess and report the success of what you're doing? Is there a way to kind of benchmark it quantitatively? I think focusing less on what you do, like, hey, we have this event every year, and focusing more on what happened because you did it is the key. And I'm talking about outcomes and I'm talking about impact. So we tend to focus more on like, what are we doing? We're doing 100 events. And I would like to see a shift, and I try in, in my consulting work to encourage organizations to move towards a shift that asks not how many events did we have, but that asks, do we know what happened to the people who came to those events? Are they more likely to volunteer? Are they likely to come to a second event? If they come to a second event, how much more likely are they to become a donor and to come to an event next year or to volunteer or to remain a donor? And those correlations within the behaviors, yeah, it's manual labor. You have to collect a lot of data and you have to have an analytical person on your staff whose responsibility includes crunching those numbers. But if you can start to crunch those numbers, you can start to see what the relationship is between what you're doing and what happens downstream and whether it is in fact retaining engaged alumni or there's a lot of turnover and you're not you're not really succeeding. You got to look at what works, look at the evidence and then use your judgment, which maybe is less quantitative and more qualitative to figure out how that applies to the rest of the programming areas you're responsible for and then do it again, assess, repeat and then continue. And so it's a process of continual improvement through a combination of measurement and judgment that I think is something that um, the advancement and alumni leaders really need to keep at the top of their minds. Andy Shanlin, I could talk to you all day, my friend. Uh, <laughs> we, it's uh, an honor to have you on the show. I really appreciate it. I know listeners will enjoy hearing your words of wisdom. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed it. I really appreciate the invitation. And I just want to say thank you, Ryan, for what you're doing and getting a, a bunch of viewpoints out there for different people to learn from and to hear. I think it's helping the profession. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Andy as much as I did. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, and you can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. 
Thanks for sharing the show with colleagues, friends, and your networks. And I'll be back again next week with part two of my interview with Andy Shamlin.